0: Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. All right, so again, turn with me to um, Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. And the word of the Sovereign Lord reads this way. And he began to teach them. And why did he come? These are probably perhaps the two most important questions you will ever answer. Who is Jesus and why did he come? And I know that asking this question in this particular setting here on a Sunday morning in a worship service might seem strange. Because isn't this why we're here today? Isn't that why we sing the songs we did this morning? We sing the Revelation song. We sing the old Rugged Cross. Right? It's the reason why we came together as a congregation. We are part of His body. We're, we are here for Him to worship Him, to celebrate Him, to make much of Him, to glorify Him. From the from the call to worship until the dismissal, where I promise you that you are loved and prayed for, it is all about Him. So it would seem that we would all know the answer. To these questions: Who is Jesus, and why did He come? But the truth is, seeing this text this morning, and knowing what I know about people, and knowing what I know about many Christians, I would have to say that some of us may not know, right, what these, what the answer to these questions are, or at least we may not know fully to the extent of these, the answers to these questions, because maybe we still have some growing up still to do. We might have our eyes. You know, open to the truth about Christ and be saved, but we might not yet see things completely clearly, like the apostles. And so it's important that we continue to come back and ask this question: Who is Jesus, and why did He come? And in today's text, it's going to help us to see these things a little bit better. You know, we're going to see a clear picture of who Jesus is, why He came, and and why it's difficult for even believers to fully see and understand this now understand we're at the midway point of, of the gospel of Mark and Mark's gospel is a record I don't know if you realize this but it's a record of, of the eyewitness testimony of the Apostle Peter so there's things that, that in, in Mark's gospel that, that he leaves out that other other gospel narratives include like when Mark when Peter walked on water Mark left that out I'm imagining because Peter's like don't put that in there that's that's too much focus on me. But Mark's gospel is the the testimony of the Apostle Peter. And so in essence, this is Peter's story of Jesus. And this gospel, it gets right to the point and opens up with the declaration that the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark begins his gospel narrative with the earth-shattering declaration of who Jesus is. Jesus is not just some man from Galilee. He's not just some prophet that was sent by God. He's not just some enlightened being, as as many people will suppose. He's not some highly respected sage. He's not some highly respected humanitarian. He is the son of the living God. He is God in in the flesh. And we talk about this over and over again, But but let's not lose sight of that, that. This is a staggering fact of the Christian faith. That God himself came here to rescue us. God himself came to rescue us. Not an angel. Not some exalted man who became a god. Not some created being, but the eternal living God. And you take Mark's opening statement, which again... Is Peter's story, and you said it side by side with John's opening statement, which says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory, the the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. When you see these two statements side by side together, right, that come from from Jesus' closest apostles... What what we, what we see here is an inescapable conclusion. Jesus is God in the flesh. That's what the Christian faith is founded on. You take that away, there is no Christianity. The fact that God the Son took on a human nature and became truly God and truly man in the same instance and came into the world, if you deny that truth, that Jesus is eternally God and took on a human nature and came to rescue us, if you deny any part of that, then you deny the entirety of the Christian faith. If you deny that Jesus is God in the flesh, you're not a Christian. You're not born again. You're not a believer. Mark makes it clear that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the reigning King. And so Mark's declaration, the purpose of the very first half of the gospel, is the absolute historical fact that the king himself has come. That God himself has come into the world. That is why Jesus opens up his preaching ministry with a call to believe. He said, in effect, the time is now. The kingdom of heaven is here because the king is here. And in light of that... The way into the kingdom is to repent and believe the gospel. The time is now. The kingdom is here. Repent and believe the gospel. The Son of Man has come to the earth making a way for sinners to finally be saved. That is the declaration that Mark is making from the very beginning. And he sets out to prove that in his gospel. That's why Mark records for us all the things that he's done. All that that Jesus teaches... All that Jesus does points to this this reality here. Every miracle, every healing, every casting out of demons, which, by the way, they acknowledged who he was. Every sermon, every teaching, every pointed comment towards the Pharisees all point to this one reality. That's why when he encountered the paralytic, he said, Son, your sins are forgiven. And, And this was a statement that nobody even expected for him to say. And the scribes in their minds began to question him, Right? And they ask rightly who but God can forgive sins. Jesus said the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, and he proves it with a miracle. Or how about when the Pharisees said that, that his disciples were Sabbath breakers. He said to them, number one, your your understanding is flawed, because the, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. But by the way, the Son of Man is the Lord, is the owner of the Sabbath. Mark is Proven that Jesus is exactly what he said he is, is the Son of God. And finally last week we see for the very first time in the Gospel of Mark a human being finally proclaim the truth. Peter the Apostle finally declares that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. The King has come and he has proven that he has power over the natural world. He's also proven that he has power over the spiritual world and he's proven that Jesus is completely sovereign over everything including salvation itself. In the first half of the gospel not only does he say the king comes but the king is sovereign over everything including our justification because as we know that the only thing only God can change the heart so that we can receive the gospel. That's what we see throughout the first half of the book of Mark. There's only two types of people, as we talk about over and over again. If there's anything you remember from this series, I hope that would be it. There's only two types of people. There's out insiders and outsiders. Those in the kingdom and those not in the kingdom. Believers and unbelievers. There's two classes of people. And the difference between the two is not their upbringing or their education or their intelligence level or their environment. Right? The difference is what? It's the condition of their hearts. Unbelievers have hardened hearts. But believers have changed hearts. Hearts that have been changed supernaturally by the work of God. And so, yes, we must repent and believe the gospel, but God must change our heart for us to receive the gospel. Jesus is sovereign over justification, and we will see that all, we've seen that all over the first half of this gospel. But there's more. Because in the latter part of this first half, we begin to see a new theme emerging, that Jesus is sovereign over, even over our sanctification that is he who progressively opens our eyes and our hearts to the truth throughout the gospel of mark we see his followers being slow to comprehend who he is being slow to understand what's happening around them in spite of all the miracles and all that jesus says over and over again jesus asked do you not see do you not understand and then all of this comes to head to a head when he finally heals a blind man And he does so first by giving him a little bit of sight right, so that he can see. But then he goes ahead and touches him a second time and restores his sight completely. And he did it that way on purpose. Jesus was making a point that he's the one who opens our spiritual eyes. And he is the one who progressively brings the truth about who he is and his mission into clear focus in our lives. Which is what we've seen and what we will continue to see throughout the end of the gospel which really sets up the second half of, of the gospel of Mark. Because the first half of the gospel is a declaration that the king has come. The second half of the gospel is a declaration of two things. Number one, what the king has come to do. And number two, what it means for us to follow him as a disciple. The second half of the gospel is going to focus on those two points. What Jesus came to do. We already know who he is. Now what does he come to do? And then what does it mean for us to follow as a disciple. Now this week, we're going to begin looking at the very first one. And next week, we'll look at the second one. In, in light of who Jesus is and what he came to do, what does it mean for us to follow him? So again, turn with me you get back to Mark chapter 8. And before we jump in, let me just you know, help you to remember where we are in the context here. Because there's a lot of threads that have come together that influence our understanding of this text. First of all, Jesus... As we have mentioned, heal the blind man in two stages. That is super important for our understanding moving forward. right? And it communicates that to, to us that Jesus is the one who opens our spiritual eyes, and he's the one who progressively causes us to see the truth more clearly. And then right after that, the next thing that happens, Peter shows supernatural insight by declaring that Jesus is the Son of God. In fact, in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus says to Peter that you know what, you didn't figure that out by, your own, by yourself. Right? That didn't come from you. That came from God your Father. God the Father revealed that to you. And so Peter demonstrates, right, by the grace of God, he finally understands who Christ is and that his eyes are more open than they have been. But in today's text, which is basically the very same conversation, right, he's going to absolutely demonstrate how ignorant he still is. That his spiritual sight isn't quite as clear as he thinks it is. Think about this. In one moment, Jesus praises him for his ability to see, right? And in the next, he's rebuking him for his lack of ability to see clearly. This all happens in one conversation. Talk about an emotional roller coaster ride, right? One moment, Jesus is saying, Blessed are you. And the next moment, he's saying, He's calling you Satan, right? And so this text shows us the ongoing process of how Christ opens the eyes of believers, but it also has an important lesson for us on how we understand and answer the question of who Jesus is and what he came to do. So again, turn with me to Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. And it says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this, Plainly, now the thing that we need to see in this text here is that Jesus, he's not telling parables. He's not mincing his words. He isn't speaking in in allegories, right? He's not alluding to anything. He's not using symbolic language, right? Right. It says that he says these things plainly. He's very very clear about what he's saying. He's not being vague in any sense of the imagination. He was saying very clearly that he was going to be killed. The the king has come to die. He said that the the son of man must be killed, which, by the way, is not something that they were expecting him to say. Of all the things that they were expecting him to follow that conversation up with Peter about Peter knowing who he is, this was not the thing that they were expecting him to talk about. This wasn't even on their radar. This was not even something even close, remote. You ever have one of those conversations when you're having a conversation with somebody and they just say the most random thing that you're like, where did that come from? This is even worse than that, right? But but here it is. Jesus says it very clearly, very plainly. Now, if, if that were not surprising enough on his own, though... Jesus then says that not only would he die, but he would rise again three days later. Not only would he be killed, he would be raised from the dead three days later in victory, which is an incredible but unbelievable statement. Again, if they weren't expecting him to say, I'm going to die, they weren't expecting him at all, even in their wildest dreams, to say what he said next, which he's going to rise again. But there it is. And the thing that we need to understand is that this is the first of three statements that Jesus is going to make about his death and resurrection. He's not going to just say this one time and leave it here, right? He's going to talk about this three times. And the problem is is these men when when Christ is going to be arrested, they're not going to remember this conversation. Right? In fact, when they get, when he gets arrested what do they do? They run for their lives. And when Christ is crucified, what do they do? They go into hiding, knowing that they're next. And they spend the next few days dejected because they think it's over. It's done. The dream that we've had, this vision that we've had is over. It's gone. They're simply not going to fully accept what Jesus is saying right here. That he's going to die and be resurrected. And again... It's not that he's speaking in riddles. That's the point. It's not that he's speaking in a code. Mark said that this was, this was a teaching. He was teaching here, which means he was being deliberate. It was, it was either a sermon or a lecture, and he was giving clear instruction. He was clearly explaining himself. That's why Mark said that, 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 he, that he was speaking to these things plainly. And I want you to notice the word must here in the text. He said the Son of Man must suffer many things. This word must here in this text is from a Greek word that expresses necessity, even inevitability. And so in other words, it is it is necessary. That the Son of Man suffer these things. It is it is inevitable. It's going to happen, right? These things must take place. There's no alternative, is what he's expressing. It is, it is what that's what Jesus is saying. It will absolutely, without question, take place. Jesus clearly told them what's going to happen. He was going to die and rise again. He told them this absolutely, that it must happen. There's no way around this. And even told them. Right? Who was going to kill him? It wasn't, he didn't leave it like a vague like somebody's going to kill me. He told him clearly who it was going to be. He said that he would be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. And that he would be killed. He's going to be rejected by the Sanhedrin. That's who he's referring to when he says the elders, chief priests, and scribes. That ruling council of of, of the Jews. And this in this word here where he says that they're going to reject him, This word rejected denotes an idea of examination first. It's not that they're just rejecting him. The the, the word itself communicates this idea that he's been examined and based on that they're going to say no or they're going to turn him away or they're going to try him and reject him and then kill him. You see, Jesus is right here making the clearest possible prophecy, a clear specific prophecy what's going to happen to him. And, and, And the worst part it's going right over their heads. Right? He's telling them, clearly, this must happen. It's going to happen this way. He's telling them the specifics of who it's going to be at the hands of, and it goes right over their heads. They may hear his words, but they're not understanding or accepting what he's saying. Their preconceived understanding of Christ is preventing them from comprehending the truth that he's telling them, which, again, proves the point that Christ is sovereign even over sanctification. He's the one who will open their eyes at the right time because even though they don't see it now, when he does die, when he is resurrected, they will finally remember this conversation and say, he said this is exactly what was going to happen, that he's going to die, he's going to be resurrected. But for now, in this moment, they are completely blind to what is right in front of them. Which for me, as I look at this text, that scares me. That scares me, because if Christ's apostles, the ones that were with him, were blind to what was right in front of them, what am I blind to? What am I not seeing? What truth is staring me in the face right now that I simply just don't have the ability to comprehend? I can look over my Christian life and see there has been many times that I've, there have been lots of things. What about now? Brothers and sisters, this right here is why we need to walk in humility as Christians. This absolutely is the reason why we need to walk in humility as Christians. Because the fact of the matter is, you, just like me, you were not fully matured in your face to the point you know everything. Right? No matter how many theology books you might have read, right? you were just not there yet i am not there yet which means there's still a lot more to learn and it's possible even probable that some of what you're holding on to and believe even right at this moment could be incorrect one of the things that that uh, kim expressed to me one time she said after we we, we you know she's been growing in her her faith in theology and one time we talked about something we believed before She's like, you know, it's kind of frustrating to me that you know, there's something I, I came to learn and believed, and I even taught people, and now I'm coming back going, actually, that was wrong about that. I, one of the interesting things about the Christian faith is, is that you know, sometimes we hold on to things that we're wrong about, but what's even worse is when Christians get puffed up about what they think they know. I think we've experienced that, right? I've, I've personally experienced even young, like, like very young in the faith Christians and older Christians, and I don't mean like like old people, but I'm talking about like people who've been Christians for a lot of years. Um, who both both of those groups have super strong emotions and feelings about a number of doctrines. They have they have they've been taught some things, or they heard something that a pastor had taught them at one point, or they just grew up hearing something, and they just critically un- you know accept and, and believe those things. But what's worse is they basically feel like if you don't agree with them. Then, then you're just completely wrong and maybe even foolish. I mean, I've had somebody that's been a Christian for like 6 months, you know, tell me I'm a fool for some of the things, some of the doctrines I believe. Going, All right, well I'll be humble. Maybe you should be too. The fact is, they're less than humble in their attitudes about those things. Not recognizing that many of their views that they're holding on to, you know, are are actually based more on tradition rather than the scripture. And what it actually teaches. They're blind to the truth. right? By what they already think that they know. Just like these men. right? <laughs> Even the best. The truth is as followers of Christ. We must understand that we don't know everything. We must always have a humble. And teachable spirit. Understanding that our spiritual eyes. Are really open to the degree. That Christ has opened them. And there's probably some things. That we might be holding on to. That are just in error, or not correct. In fact, Peter in this text illustrates this point brilliantly. Jesus said that he was going to be killed and resurrected, and I want you to see Peter's response here. Okay, This is shocking, and we've got to understand, this is Peter's story, so he's like throwing himself completely under the bus here. Okay, He's being completely honest with how he behaved. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now the word rebuke here is not like a very like you know soft word. This is a this is a harsh, super strong in your face kind of word. This is the word that Mark uses of, of Christ when he rebukes demons. Right? It's the same kind of attitude, it's the same kind of word. Okay, so it's not like he was like saying, Hey, you know, Jesus, can I, can I just talk to you for a second? Because there's some things you just said that I don't really understand. I just want to get some clarity, you know maybe I misheard you, right? No, right? He rebuked him verbally and publicly and openly. He scolded him is another way to say it. In fact, Matthew's gospel says, Peter says, far be it from you, Lord, that shall never happen to you. Or in other words, what are you talking about? That's impossible. You're the Messiah. That's never going to happen to you, right? You're never going to be killed, so stop talking like that. Peter heard what Jesus said. He just simply wouldn't accept what he said. He heard it, but he just couldn't accept it. And Peter, right, he's the man who declared that Jesus is the Son of God. Think about this. And he turns right around and rebukes Jesus as if he has some authority over Jesus at all. Jesus Jesus walked on water in front of Peter. Peter actually stepped on the water with him. Peter saw him calm two life-threatening storms. He saw Jesus heal hundreds and hundreds of people. He he saw him cast out hundreds of demons. He saw him multiply a couple of lunchables for like 9,000 men and and their families. And, And then finally... Right, he finally understands that Jesus is the Son of God. He turns around and he 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 says it, but then he he has the audacity, just in the same conversation, to begin to lecture Jesus like he's some kind of teenager. Talk about your vision being clouded. Well, brothers and sisters, if Peter himself could have his vision clouded to to some truths, then so can we. Peter, for all his good intentions, had his vision clouded by his own assumptions. Notice what Peter, what Jesus, how he responds. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Now, why did, why did he rebuke him, you know, this way? Why did he turn to the disciples and then rebuke Peter? He didn't just say, I rebuke you, Peter, you know. He turned to the disciples and rebukes Peter. Did he do it to embarrass him? Was he trying to make an example out of him? Sometimes we, as parents, can do that. We want to make an example out of somebody, right? Was he trying to make him make make this situation more uncomfortable so Peter would never, ever, ever, ever forget it, so he would never question him again? No. He turned to him, turned to them because they were thinking the exact same thing he was. They were thinking the exact same thing. The only difference is Peter is the only one that had the guts to say it. None of them believed that Jesus. I mean, they didn't believe what Jesus has just just said. They didn't believe it. None of them believed his words that he was going to die, right? Which again, you know, we need to we need to really think through. Let's put ourselves in their shoes. They had been with Christ for over a year now, and they've seen some pretty crazy and wild stuff. And they agreed with Peter about who Christ is, and they've seen him do miracles in front of their own eyes. But yet, in this moment, they didn't believe what Jesus was saying either. And before we look down on them, before we decide that, you know, that we're smarter than them, let me just tell you the truth. We're all prone to do the exact same thing. We know that God, that Christ is God in the flesh. We know that he died to save us, right? And we hold on to the promises that he will never leave us or forsake us, right? That if God is for us, who will be against us? We've we've said those and, and heard those before and then all things work together for the good of those who love him and called according to his purpose, right? We know those things and we believe those things, but then when something bad happens in our lives, when something goes sideways that we didn't expect, what do we do? God, where are you? As if he's left you. Why did you let this happen to me? Don't you love me? I thought I was serving you. I thought I was doing right by you. Why have you forsaken me? As if suddenly we don't believe those promises anymore. Tell me I'm wrong. We will worry and we will stress and we'll ruminate about things that might happen that could possibly happen until we're sick to our stomachs, even though God says very plainly, do not be anxious about anything. We will try to manipulate situations and and, and and we we will you know allow things to eat at our gut and we're gonna to try to control the things that we can't control, forgetting you know what God had said in, in Proverbs chapter three. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. And in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your path. But yet we will panic and we will lose sleep and stress, and we'll make a mess out of things trying to to direct outcomes and, and get ahead of things and head things off at the pass. As if we don't believe the truth that God is still sovereign and in control, that God is good and that he loves us. As if we forget the fact that God is for us. I can't tell you how many times in my own life I've seen God work specifically in many situations where I prayed God to intervene in the situation that He has that He has provided for us, He has met our needs, He has He has helped us through many difficult times, right? But then instead of trusting Him and being at peace, I still panic, right? When things don't seem to be going my way. As if we don't believe in the moment that you know the things that God has said to us. Just like the Apostles. They know Christ personally, and, and they certainly are saved by grace. But in this moment, they just don't believe what he's saying to them. That's why Jesus turns to them and rebukes Peter, because he's, in essence, rebuking them all. And he says, man, I hope Jesus never says this to me. Okay? He said, get behind me, Satan. I'm not you, but like I think, if of all the worst insults that could come from Christ, that would probably be the one. Get behind me, Satan! I mean, I think what would be worse than that is away from me. I never knew you, right? But get behind me, Satan! Stinging, stinging words, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, this statement right here is really actually very revealing for us, because not because not only because it helps us uh, not only to to it helps us to to bring Two important things into focus that really prevent us from seeing clearly. Two things that get in the way of his disciples understanding and embracing what Jesus is saying here, and two things that are that are keeping them from seeing the truth, and two things that really get in the way for us too. The first one is Satan. Jesus said, Get behind me, Satan, not because Peter himself is Satan but because at the center of Peter's confusion, he is our archenemy, the devil himself. He is the one getting in the way here. And the thing that you and I need to understand and fully realize and accept is that all false views of Christ and what he came to do have their origins in Satan himself. It It is Satan who asked Eve, didn't God say? And tempted her by saying, you'll be like God. All the false views that we have of Christ and who he is and what he's come to do come from the enemy. So when people say things to me like, well, Jesus just wants me to be healthy, wealthy, and happy, where does that prosperity gospel come from? It comes from Satan. Satan is, it is his aim to distract us and divert us. It is his desire to cloud our vision. And he is a master at it. I I hear sometimes, and every once in a while, some like service where where the preachers, you know, shouting at Satan, like, "You better not do this, Satan!" I'm like, he's been around since beginning, since the beginning, right? He knows what he's doing, right? The only hope that we have is Christ. He's a master. At distracting us. That's why so many people who profess to be Christians will say so many things like, well, if God is, is, is if, if God is love, then he wouldn't send people to hell. Or God can't do anything in my life without my permission. I've heard that recently a lot. God can't do anything in your life without your permission. I'm going, I, I don't see that in there anywhere. Right, God cannot do anything except that God cannot do anything to overcome a man's free will. not one I've heard. Or if Jesus were here today, this is one I heard recently. If Jesus was here today, I believe that Jesus would say that a woman has a right to choose whether or not to have an abortion. I've heard people who claim to be Christians say those words. And all of these views of God have the exact same origin. Say. And some of them are just outright heretical, right? revealing that the person who said these things are not saved, and some of them are just serious errors that reveal that even though a person might be a believer, Satan is distracting them from the truth about Christ. And by the way, that's what happens to Peter. He is absolutely a believer. We know that. Right? He knows Christ. He recognizes that Jesus is the Messiah, but still he has a false view that's getting in the way that's from Satan. You see, Peter, just like Most of the Jews at that time believed that Jesus was going to come to lead a military victory against Rome. That was was what they were hoping for, believing for. And that he would then after that ascend to the the throne of David, and that he would establish Israel as a world superpower forever, and Peter and the rest of his disciples then would be part of Jesus' ruling class. That they were all going to be VIPs in this new kingdom. That's why they ask questions like, you know, who's going to be the greatest? Or, hey, when you ascend to your throne, can I sit at your right hand? And so Jesus, right, saying that he was going to die, that absolutely didn't make any sense at all to to him, to Peter. Because it, it just didn't fit with this preconceived idea about what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah, You see, the problem ultimately isn't that Peter had a false view of why Christ had come. The problem is that Peter didn't want to let his false view go in light of the truth. Because it made sense to Peter, his old view. It was something that Peter had thought a lot about, spent a lot of time thinking about and meditating on. It was, it was something that he was convinced of. Peter had invested in this point of view of who Jesus is as the Messiah, like, like the way many believers are today. Many people have beliefs and, and, and traditions that they hold on to simply because they're invested in them. Oftentimes we get so invested in a point of view that we're not open to correction. That's Peter. He wasn't open to Jesus himself correcting his view because Peter thought he knew best. But, but Jesus gets right to the heart of the issue and he says to him, right, you're not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. You see, the second thing that, that clouds our vision of Christ is a man-centered view of God rather than a God-centered view of Christ. It's a man-centered view of Christ rather than a God-centered view. Church family, if there is a place that where we can stumble, it's it's going to be right here. It's not that we don't love the Lord. It's not that we don't want to be near Him. It's not that we don't want to have a relationship with Him. It's just like Peter. We tend to bring with us preconceived ideas and, and personal preferences and traditional understandings and our experiences. And they have clouded our vision of to the truth of who He is. Though we may absolutely be born again, we still have this tendency to build our understanding of Christ and His mission and what it means to follow Him on man-centered ideas rather than God and what He has to say. We have a tendency towards man-centered theology rather than God-centered theology. That's, That's how we're wired because of the fall. And what we need is the Holy Spirit to continue to change us and open our eyes to the truth. But we also must do what Christ is implying here. He said you're, you're setting your mind on the things of man and not things of God. We need to individually as believers and corporately as a church family. We need to make it a conscious effort to set our minds on Christ and the things of God. Which means we must be willing to go wherever Christ leads us. We say that, we say that, I'll go wherever Christ leads me, but then we don't go where he leads us in our evangelism or in our efforts to help and love other people or our efforts to to grow. We need to be able to go where Christ is leading us and we must be willing to submit our hearts and minds to what the Bible actually teaches and not what our tradition actually says. The fact of the matter is, is, we're is, 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 is going to be times when we're going to encounter what God has to say. There are going to be texts in the Bible that we're going to read that are just going to rub us the wrong way. It's not going to be what we want to hear. It's not going to be what we are used to hearing. It's not going to be something that we're going to even like. And it will con- conflict with either what we think or believe. And our tendency is to try to avoid it. Or explain it away. And believe me, if there's something about the Bible you don't like, go to YouTube, and you will find somebody who will tell you what you want to hear, and it will explain away what it's saying, so you'll feel better about yourself. There's that the, the the internet is chocked full of that. We tend to do that rather than simply embracing what God is actually saying. And that's what we see here with Peter his preconceived ideas, his hopes for the future, his plan that he's already laid out in his mind is preventing him from embracing the truth of Christ's words. And if we're not careful, we can do the exact same thing. The same thing can happen to us. So what do we, what do, we do with this then? Is really, you know, because we look at this, and we see, this is a mirror, by the way, the Word of God is a mirror in which we look and we see ourselves. And I don't know about you, but I look at this text and I see Peter. I mean, he's like one of the top three. He's the leader of the early church. I see him, and I see how he's stumbling here, and I can see myself. So, What do we do with this? Well, the application is actually simple in theory, but it requires effort in practice. And the first one is is we need to pray and continue to pray that God will open our eyes and soften our hearts because that's the sovereign work of God that we need for him to do. We need to submit ourselves and say, Lord, I understand. I cannot change myself. I can't open my own heart and my own eyes. I need for you to do it. We all need to humble ourselves before the Master and continually be asking Him to open our hearts to the truth. Soften our hearts to the truth. Make us open and receptive. I, years ago, struggled with the idea of the sovereignty of God. It was something that offended my senses. But it was over time that God changed my heart about this, and I submitted my heart to where the Scripture goes. Pray that God would open your heart. Second, is, is if you're going to grow at all, and you're going to come under the authority of Christ and really see Him clearly, you have to be in the Word. You have to be. The fact of the matter is, is the studies are that 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 Christians, the, 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 the Christians on average, I think it's about like four percent of Christians actually read their Bibles. if we're going to ever be the people that God is calling us to be, if we're ever going to know Him the level that we that, 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 that he's, he's desiring for us, if we're ever going to walk with Him in a way that really helps us to see who He is, we have to be in the Word. And not just simply reading it, but actually studying it, actually diving in. Right? And again, when you encounter those texts asking, Lord, change my heart about this, help me to see. Right, Read and study the Word of God. Right, And then also then, I think, as we as we connect to last week, is we need to also read and study our statements of faith and our confessions. Right? I think it's your duty as, as the congregation to read those things to make sure that you even believe those things are sound and those things are even true. Right? And, and what's nice about those statements of faith is there are statements that are being made in there and there are scriptures that are connected to them. You could actually go to the text yourself and, and look at that and say, does that really line up? And then number four is to stay connected. There is no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian that go, that comes to, to maturity. We absolutely need the body of Christ. You all need um, a shepherd in your life, but you also, more than that, need one another. Iron sharpens iron, as the, as the Word of God says. You need to be able to have a group of people that you can ask questions. That when, you, when you read something, to go, that doesn't make any sense to me. I need to get some counsel on this. Right? Or you can ask the questions and work through the difficult issues. Those the things. So praying, reading the, the word, studying the statements of faith, and staying connected. Now, I think probably the most important thing is deciding every day, every day, to be humble. It's just really easy for us not to be. It's really easy for us to become hardened, you know. You let somebody gain a little bit of knowledge about something, and what happens? They get a little bit puffed up. That's what the Word says. Knowledge puffs up. Right? We need to make sure that we are approaching the throne of grace humbly. God has given us the ability to become boldly without question, but let us come before Him also humbly, understanding that, that it, is, it is His desire for our hearts and minds to be conformed to the image of Christ, and that we need Him